Hey, welcome to the Capital City Christian Podcast and to our series study through the book of 1 John, a verse-by-verse study through this great letter written by the Apostle John. So grab a Bible, grab a notepad, and let's dive in together. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our Tuesday afternoon study. I was just listening to Elevation's song on their new album called Rattle. If you have never listened to the song Rattle, Elevation Worship's new album, it is worth it. It is a powerful, powerful song. Um, One of my new favorites. One of my new favorites for sure. Hey, we are so glad... Um, You are here today for our uh, Tuesday study. Um, Whether you are joining us right here live, um, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or our church online platform, or maybe you are watching this as a um, repeat later on today or later on this week, we are so glad um, that you have joined us and we are so glad that you are here. We hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful Tuesday afternoon, and uh, we hope you're doing well. Today, we are continuing in a study through the book of 1 John, and we have been walking through 1 John word by word over the past couple of months, and today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2. We're in verse 19 today, and so I want to make sure that you grab your Bible. You'll maybe want to grab a notepad to take some notes on. Um, And maybe you can uh, grab a fancy glass because it's Tuesday afternoon and it's time for your fancy glass. My fancy glass today is filled with peach-flavored sparkling water. Yes, peach-flavored sparkling water. I'm going really fancy today. (laughs) Really fancy today on my peach-flavored sparkling water. Hey, we are glad that you are here, and um, we're going to spend 20 to 30 minutes together today um, going through a couple of verses from this great book, 1 John, and um, we're glad you've joined us. Um, Before we jump in, we, of course, have to do Tuesday's Dad Joke of the Week, Tuesday's Dad Joke of the Week, which is a segment we do every single Tuesday when we gather together to get ready for uh, study, um, Tuesday's Dad Joke of the Week. Here is the Dad Joke of the Week. What does a nosy pepper do? It gets jalapeno business. Yes, it gets jalapeno business. Here's to Tuesday's Dad Joke of the Week. You know, side note, I love jalapenos. I absolutely love them, and I put them on a lot, a lot of things. So that was one of my favorite dad jokes. All righty, all righty, enough of that. Let's dive in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Now, if you were here last week, um, we looked at one verse 
for the, our entire time last week together, verse 18. And verse 18, um, we were talking uh, about, or John was writing about what he called the Antichrist. The Antichrist is kind of hot button, um, hot topic word um, when it comes to talking about the end times, when it comes to um, talking about the writings of John. And uh, we were talking about the Antichrist. If you missed that, you can get on um, uh, a Facebook, a YouTube. You can go back into the archives and look up that um, study. Uh, from last week, but we were talking about the Antichrist, and, the, and the, the word Antichrist literally means somebody who is against Jesus, right, against the Christ, or somebody who puts themselves in place of Jesus. And one of the things that we said last week is that as John is writing about the Antichrist, and he's going to continue that conversation today, um, John could be referring to, to, to multiple things. It seems like he's referring to multiple things. It seems like he is referring to a future character that's going to come toward the end times. Um, but it also seems to be that he is pointing to a spirit that is among the church in the first century at the time when John was writing this letter to the church. That there were this, this, this spirit of the Antichrist and there were these false teachers and these Gnostic teachers who were, who were uh, coming into the church, who were causing problems, and who were literally anti-Jesus. And we said last week that every generation, uh, every age of the church has experienced the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, and John continues this conversation into verse 19, and he says something um, I think really interesting. So if you've got your Bible, John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, we're in verse 19. Um, I'm going to read a couple of these verses, um, and then we'll go back and we'll talk uh, through them. John 2, 1 John 2 verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were really not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Follow me here. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Okay, so here he says in verse 19, they, and in context, he's speaking about these antichrists, these people who are against Jesus. They went out from us, Paul, uh, or John says, but they were really not of us. And so what John is doing, he's giving us this perfect example of how false teaching and false professions of the faith are visible within the church. Even in the church, in the, in the community of faith, there are false teachers and there are false professions of faith. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 says this. Jesus speaks these words. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, speaking of judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not profess in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. There will always be people who claim to be followers of Jesus or claim to be Christians who are actually making a false profession of faith, who are actually false teachers. And John says, here are these people who he calls antichrist, they are against Jesus, that they went out from us, which means they, they were with us at one point as, as the community of faith, but they were not really of us. Their, their lack of truth their lack of love, their lack of perseverance are all evidences that they were really not true, authentic believers. Here, here's a reality about false teaching and, and heresy. Heresy always comes from within the church. It never comes outside of. 
Heresy, by its very definition, is something that comes from within the church. People who claim to be a part of, people who claim to be Christians, but who really are not. Now, if you study uh, grammatically verse 19, John is very careful in the, in the verb tenses that he uses. And what he is basically saying in verse 19 is these false teachers, they have left. They were never truly a part of us, which is in the imperfect tense. And, and then he says, if they had been a part of us, they would have not left. That These are not, John is saying, these are not people who fell from grace or these were not people who drifted away from their faith because there are people who are genuinely followers of Jesus but because of temptation because of situations and experiences they drift away from their faith and they fall away from the from the grace of God but these people that John is talking about these are people who have never experienced the life-changing anointing of the spirit of God that they've never repented They've never truly believed in the gospel and have never personally received Christ. John would say these are false shepherds. They are, they are false leaders and they have false sheep that are following them. They, they were not of us. And then he says this. He says, um, so for they had, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have remained with us. They would have stayed. And the tense that he uses here is speaking of a completed action in past time. Now, this is one of several references um, to this concept of the perseverance of the saints. That there is this perseverance that is needed um, to follow Jesus and to continue following Jesus in faith. And it's mentioned multiple times, even within this chapter. Look what uh, he says down in verse 24 of chapter 2. He says, As for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. So there's a sense that we have been called to remain and to persevere in our faith. Verse 27, he says, as for you, the anointing you received, we'll talk about that in a moment, from him remains in you. And you do not need to teach anyone, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught, you remain in him. Perseverance. Verse 28, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, when Jesus comes back, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So there's this concept of this perseverance. John says, if they were really a part of us, they would have remained with us. They would have persevered in their faith. True faith and true perseverance in your faith is, is, is tangibly seen by the fruit that you bear. Just go read Matthew chapter 13. It's all about how we ought to bear fruit. And bearing fruit is this tangible evidence that we are remaining in Jesus, that our faith is persevering um, as we walk with Christ. So John says, if they were really a part of us, they would have remained with us. And so they went, they left, so none of them belonged to us. They really did not have a transformation of their heart because of the gospel of Jesus. Now look at verse 20. John says this, but you, so there's a transition here. He says, but you... You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth. 
Okay, so John pivots here, and he says, but you, and the, and the word you here in the Greek language is plural, and it's emphasized in the Greek text. And what John is doing is he is comparing the you who he's talking to, believers, to those who left the Christian fellowship, to those who were the Antichrist, to those who fell away or who, who, who left uh, the church community. He says, but you, let me, let, me, let me tell you, those of you who are followers, those of you who are persevering in your faith, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, it is possible, because what John has talked about so far in the first couple chapters of 1 John, and we've mentioned this, is John is, is talking a lot about Gnostic um, influencers who were um, disrupting the church that John was writing to, and these Gnostics were influenced very much by Eastern kind of mystery religions. And they taught that there was this special anointing which brought about knowledge and identification with God. Like you had to have this special anointing to know God or to have this knowledge about God. The, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so the, the Gnostic false teachers believed that you had to have this mysterious anointing in order to know something about God or to have this revelation about God. But here in verse 20, John asserts that it is believers, not the Gnostic false teachers, who have an anointing. It is believers who have this special initiation from God. That, that it's through the, the Spirit of God that we have this anointing that we can have and we can know about God, that we, that we can we understand about the gospel of, of Jesus. Now, John uses this interesting phrase in verse 20. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, who is the Holy One? If you, if you look through Scripture, there's really three options for the Holy One. Number one, it can refer to God, God the Father. Numerous Old Testament passages that refer to God as the, the Holy One of Israel. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, um, the Apostle Paul says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. God anointed us. Here in verse 20, John is talking about how we have this anointing from the Holy One. So it could be God the Father. It could be God the Son. Could be Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 24 says this. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Remember in Mark chapter 1, there's some demons who are calling out to Jesus. They say, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. So Jesus is called the Holy One of God as well. And then a third option could be the other um, part of the Trinity could be God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, God, the Spirit is often called the Holy One in Scripture. But then we have a verse like this, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where we have all three of the Godhead included in this conversation. Look at this, Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And so here you have this concept that God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, there's your Godhead right there in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit, so it's all intertwined. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We know in the Bible, if you read Luke, you read Acts, Jesus was anointed. In verse 27 of 1 John chapter 2, it extends to all believers, okay, that we are all, we've all been anointed. Now, what does, that, what does that mean? What's an anointing mean? 
Well, remember, the Apostle John often uses Old Testament allusions. Um, and so to understand a lot of what John is writing, we have to understand the Old Testament. And John is referring to Old Testament symbolic um, anointing. And in the Old Testament, it was a symbolic act of physical anointing. You anoint somebody's head with oil. We read about that in Exodus. You read about that in Samuel, all throughout the Old Testament. And it relates to those. Uh, somebody who was anointed is somebody who was called who was set apart, and who was equipped by God for a specific task. Equipped by God for a specific task. The prophets were anointed because they were called by God, set apart, and had a specific task. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. King David was anointed as the king of Israel. He was set apart. He was called, and he was set apart for a specific task. And so anointing, the fact that we have been anointed, John says, means that we have been called we have been set apart, and we all have a specific task. Now, another thing that we could say about anointing is that the word Christ, um, the Greek word Christos, Jesus Christ, the word Christ is the Hebrew, is the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah, and Messiah simply means the anointed one, that Jesus was called out, he was set apart, and he had a specific task. He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And so here John says, you, speaking to the church, you who are believers, you who remain in the faith, in contrast to those antichrists who, who were never really among us, who've left us, you are the ones who actually have knowledge. You are the ones who know the truth. You are the ones who have been anointed by God, set apart and called out for a specific task. And John says, you know. You know the truth. Now, this was a significant statement in light of the Gnostic false teachers who arrogantly asserted that they had secret knowledge of God. And John here says, no, 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 that's ridiculous. All of you have knowledge of God because you've been anointed. You've been called out. You're following God. It's not some mystical hidden thing that you have to learn that only a few select people can really have a knowledge of God. You know the truth. And why, if I ask this question, why does everyone have the ability to know the truth about God? It's not some hidden, mysterious thing. Every person has the ability to know about God. And why is that true? Well, you just go back to the very first couple of verses of the whole book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And this life was manifested and we have seen it. Who is he talking about? We've talked about this several weeks ago. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is how we know God and everyone can know Jesus. And this was prophesied throughout the entire scripture, the whole Old Testament. It's amazing to me how the Bible is so, so consistent in its narrative, in its, in its story. Jeremiah, listen to this verse, amazing. Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord. No, you do not have to have some special revelation. The Gnostic teacher said you got to have some mysterious special revelation to know God. No, here in Jeremiah, thousands of years before Jesus, it says, 
Everyone from the least to the greatest will have the opportunity to know the Lord. And then Jeremiah says this, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Let me ask you this, through what means are our sins forgiven? What's Jeremiah talking about? In part, he's talking about Jesus. <laughs> he's talking about Jesus, how we can all know the truth about God through God's greatest revelation, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one who was set apart for a specific task. And his task was to reveal to us God the Father. And his task was to go as the perfect lamb of God to the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and that God would remember our sins no more. We all can know because God sent the greatest revelation of all, Jesus Christ. And in a human, tangible form, people saw him, witnessed him, and through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, now we can know God. So no, you don't need some mysterious special revelation because all of us who are faithful to the Lord, who are faithful to the gospel, we all know the truth. Verse 21, John says this. He says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. Okay? In other words, I'm not writing to you to convince you of truth. You already know it. You already know truth. He says, but because you know it and no lie comes from the truth. So here John is appealing to their knowledge of the truth. You know the truth. Don't let anybody else convince you that you need to have some kind of special revelation or mysterious revelation to know who God is. Don't, don't fall into the temptations and into the teachings of these false teachers that were kind of causing um, some problems within the church. He says, you already know it. And I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth. I'm not writing you new things. I'm not, you don't need to learn something new. I'm writing to you because you know the truth and no lie comes from it. So don't believe the lie. And so really what he does in this verse is John is setting up the, the argument that he's going to make for the remainder of this chapter. And John is writing to remind his audience of what they believe and of who they are. And you know, sometimes that's all we need. Sometimes we don't need to learn something new, but we simply need to be reminded of who we are and what we do know. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, we don't need to be taught new ideas so much as to be reminded of old truths. And it's so true. So often we're trying to learn the new thing, trying to gain some kind of insight into this new knowledge or see something in a different light. And that's all great. But there are moments where we just need to be reminded of old truths and make sure that we're standing firm on them and we understand those truths and that we are not swaying from those truths because of some other kind of teaching. John says, I'm writing to you because you already know and there's no lie, no lie comes from the truth. And then John brings this kind of full circle in verse 22. He's, he asks this question in verse 22. He says, who is the liar? So just listen, to those of you who follow the truth, who really is the liar? And John is either referring to uh, a one, he's referring to a specific false teacher um, that maybe was very prominent in those days, um, or he is referring to simply the big lie, which is a denial of the gospel, right? So the liar is, is synonymous to the Antichrist in, in John's writings or the spirit of the Antichrist that is present in every age, the one who denies 
Jesus or the one who tries to replace Jesus. And John answers his own question on who is the liar. Like we don't have to dig too deep. John goes on and he says this, who is the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's that's simple answer, right? The liars are the one who denies, the one who disagrees, the one who challenges the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the son of God who suffered and who died as a human. If you were to turn the page and you jump over to chapter 4 in 1 John chapter 2, John would say this. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, so who's the liar? The one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh as God and who suffered and died for humanity. And there are many people today who deny that Jesus came in the flesh as God. There are many people who, who say all religions are the same, everything leads to the same place, but that couldn't be further from the truth, especially when it comes to what is believed about Jesus. Do you know Jesus is the most significant and controversial character in the course of all of history? I mean, I mean most religions, most religions outside of Christianity deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, according to John, they would all be liars. They would all be Antichrist. Let me give you just a few examples. If you were to talk to a Jehovah Witness, they would say that Jesus is a created being and he is actually the archangel Michael from the Bible. If you were to talk to a Mormon, um, somebody who's from the Church of Latter-day Saints, and you would say, who is Jesus? They would answer this way. Jesus is not the eternal God, but he is a polygamist man who was the half-brother of Lucifer that became one of many gods. And that comes directly from um, their own literature. If you were to ask a new ager, what do you think about Jesus? You'll get a lot of um, opinions, but many of them would be kind of congruent with the teachings of Deepak Chopra, who said, I see Christ as a state of consciousness that we can all aspire to. If you ask a Scientologist who is Jesus, they will say he is an implant, he is an implant force uh, forced upon a thetan about a million years ago. I can't even begin to give an explanation of what that means, but that comes from the Scientology website. If you go to a Baha'i and you were to ask them uh, who is Jesus, they would say Jesus is a manifestation of God or perhaps a prophet of God, but inferior to Muhammad and Bahu'u'llah. That's what they will say. If you were to ask a Buddhist, about Jesus. They would say Jesus is not God, but he is an enlightened man like that of Buddha. If you were to ask a Christian scientist, which is different than Scientology, they will go to um, Mary Baker Eddy, who is the founder of Christian Science, and they would quote her. And she said this, quote, Jesus Christ is not God. Simple. If you go to a, somebody who has a Hindu heritage, you will find that they have a lot of different views within Hinduism about Jesus. But generally, the answer will be this. Jesus Christ, he's not God, but he is an enlightened man like that of Krishna. So he's one of many, many gods, nothing special about Jesus above or over any other god. If you were to go those who are Muslim and in Islam, they would say Jesus is not God. He's merely a man just a prophet, but he is a prophet who is lesser than that of the prophet Muhammad. Over and over, many people all throughout the world today have all kinds of different ideas about Jesus. And, and most people would say that Jesus is not God. Mahatma Gandhi, the great Hindu leader, said this, I cannot say that Jesus was uniquely divine. He was as much God as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad 
or Zoroaster. And so when John says, who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that carries significant weight when it comes to what we believe about religions all throughout the world. And then John said, such person, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Who is the Antichrist? Verse 22 makes it plainly clear. Here's the last verse we look at, verse 23. John then says this. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So he says a negative statement and then he restates it positively. No one who denies the Son, who's the Antichrist, who says, no, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not from God. No one who denies that fact gets God. But if you accept the fact that Jesus is from God, then you get God. The only way to have a relationship with God is through the person of Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John heard Jesus say those words. John was with Jesus when he said those words. And you better believe that those words informed much of what John is writing here as he's talking about false teachers, as he's talking about false prophets, as he's talking about people who deny Jesus. And John recognizes, no, 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 Jesus told me, <laughs> if you don't accept Jesus, you don't get God. That Jesus is the only way to a relationship with the Father. And John highlights that here. Apparently, the Gnostic false teachers that John is addressing much in this book claim to know God, but they denied, they decentralized, and they deprecated the place of Jesus Christ. And we see that all throughout this letter of First John. Now, I want to give you really quickly a couple of thoughts about these false teachers that John was referring to, and then we'll close up. Because based on um, writings of the Gnostics from the second century, we have different writings from Gnostic teachers um, that have survived through antiquity, and we can read them today. Um, if you combine those writings, different comments from the New Testament itself, and the early church belief about um, Gnostic teachers, a couple of things that we can conclude. Here's some things that we can learn. Number one, that the Gnostics in these days tried to wed Christianity to Greek philosophy, to, to, to Platonic philosophy, and to Eastern um, mystery religions. So they tried to marry Greek philosophy, Eastern mystic religions with Christianity. Secondly, we can conclude that Gnostics, they taught that Jesus was divine, but he was not human. Because what Greek philosophy taught was that spirit is good, but matter or flesh is evil. And so there is no possibility for a physical incarnation of deity because all flesh is evil. So Jesus could not come and be fully human. That Jesus was simply uh, uh, was divine, but he was not human. He was actually spirit. And, and a lot of people take that belief to say that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually really didn't die on the cross. He didn't fully die because he wasn't fully flesh and he wasn't fully spirit, which that undermines the gospel because for the gospel to be the gospel, Jesus has to be divine, but he has to be fully human to be the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And then, and thirdly, this is the conclusion we can make by certain things if you um, do some research, is that the Gnostics taught um, two specific things about salvation. Number one, they asserted that a special knowledge of angelic spheres brought salvation of the spirit. And, and that was unrelated to the actions within your body. And so there's this kind of special mystical knowledge that you would receive, and that is one way that you could be saved. John, the, the apostle, clearly um, contradicts that when he writes that we all, all of us who believe in Jesus, have a special anointing. That it's not this mystical anointing that we need, but it is anointing um, from Jesus himself. Now, the second thing that the Gnostics taught about um, salvation is another group of Gnostics. There's different kind of groups within Gnosticism, but another group uh, within Gnosticism accentuated what was called physical asceticism or self-denial. Um, they asserted, they believed that a total denial of bodily wants and needs was crucial to true salvation. And they took verses like Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, and this concept of dying to yourself. They took it very literal to say that you as physically have to deny all, all bodily wants, okay? Hunger, thirst, sexual desires, emotional desires, whatever you need physically for your body, you need to deny it. Um, certain Gnostic teachers went as far as to castrate themselves so that they would not have sexual desires or longings because they believed that all matter was evil. And so self-denial was what you needed in order to attain true salvation. Now, John is writing, thankfully, <laughs> to oppose all of those teachings and to speak to true believers to make sure that they hold on to what they know is true. And all of the things that John says continually comes back to this, continually comes back to the question, what do you believe about Jesus? Because John is highlighting that these false teachers are anti-Christ. They're anti-Jesus. They're against Jesus. Or they set themselves up in place of Jesus, saying that Jesus really isn't the anointed one of God. Everything that John writes comes back to Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? That's why I believe the greatest question, and I said this this past Sunday, if you were um, with us in service on Sunday, I said that the greatest and most important question that anybody will ever answer in their entire life is, who do you think Jesus is? And that's why one of the greatest sections of scriptures in, in Matthew um, chapter 16, when Jesus says to his followers, says to his disciples, okay, what do people say about me? And they say, ah, oh, you know, some people think you're Elisha, some think you, people think you're John the Baptist, some think people think you're a reincarnate Jeremiah or some prophet. And Jesus says, okay, that's great. And then Jesus looks straight into the eyes of his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And I think Jesus asked every one of us a question. That the most important question we'll ever answer in our lifetime is who do we think Jesus is? Because who we think Jesus is changes everything about our life, about our worldview, about who we are. And I hope that like Peter, when Jesus answered that question, your answer would be like that of Peter when Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the promised one. The son of the living God. In that sentence, Peter said, you are the anointed promised one, 
You are here among us. You are human, but you are the son of God, which means you're divine. That was Peter's confession about who he believed Jesus was. That's John's confession about who he believes Jesus is. And we can see that clearly as John is writing in this letter, 1 John. I hope that that is your confession about who you believe Jesus is. Hey, thanks for joining us this afternoon. There's a few thoughts on those verses, 1 John chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Next week we'll gather, we'll pick it up right there in verse 24, and we'll learn a little bit more uh, about what John has to teach us. Hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful Tuesday evening, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great, great afternoon, everybody. We hope this content serves as a catalyst toward spiritual growth in your own life. If you want to support this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share it. This helps create more exposure and allows us to include as many people as possible into this community. Thanks for joining us and for being a part of the Capital City Christian Podcast.